Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We have a nonstop stream of information. You can be stimulated at any moment, 24 hours a day. And the way our society has responded has not been to say, well, let's slow down, let's maybe reduce the burden. We've responded by saying, let's toughen up. Oh, you can't keep up. That's your fault, right? You need to work longer hours. You need to push yourself more. We need to start preparing our kids for college when they're three years old. And that's affected all of us. And regardless of how sensitive you are, everyone has a limit. But sensitive people often feel that first. And in that way, I think we can be the warning bell for a lot of the rest of humanity. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a podcast for you to relax, drift off, and allow your mind to wander. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and researcher on a mission to share information that will help you live happier, healthier, and with more love, optimism, and wisdom. This podcast features interviews with well-known guests and world-leading experts about what it truly means to be human and what we can do to become the very best versions of ourselves. On The Unwind, I am interviewing Andre Solo, who's the author of Sensitive, the hidden power of the highly sensitive person in a loud, fast, and too much world. He's the co-founder of Sensitive Refuge, the world's largest website for sensitive people. And Andre has spoken about sensitive people and sensitive leadership at Google, Amazon, and PayPal. And he's written for numerous global publications like Psychology Today, Forbes, and various others. As a sensitive person himself, Andre believes that the world needs more of what sensitive people have to offer. I'm so looking forward to interviewing Andre because I certainly am a sensitive person, almost sometimes painfully sensitive. If anybody relates to that, I can walk into a room or sit with someone and just feel another person's energy or emotion so intensely, I can barely focus on my own. You may relate or you may know someone who's very sensitive. And so I hope you find this interview interesting because I do think so many more people are sensitive and relate to this more than we would ever imagine. And I'm gradually beginning to realize that there are benefits because for so many years I used to beat myself up about being sensitive. I would tell myself off for feeling too much. And as we all know, you can't really turn off your feelings. So that wasn't a particularly helpful approach to managing my sensitivity. But instead, in this interview and in Andre's brilliant new book, he provides such easy tools to help us navigate sensitivity, whether that be our own or help us manage the sensitivity of others, whether that be family members, friends, or even in the workplace. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoy this topic. Andre, I would love for you to share a piece of writing that resonates with you. So this is actually from Bruce Springsteen's biography, Born to Run. 
And Bruce Springsteen is somebody that we talk about in our book, Sensitive. He is a sensitive person himself. He grew up as a sensitive kid and did not fit in for that reason. Uh, so this is his own words talking about that experience uh, with his father, who was more of a tough guy. I was not my father's favorite citizen. As a boy, I figured it was just the way men were, distant, uncommunicative, busy within the currents of the grown-up world. As a child, you don't question your parents' choices. You accept them. They are justified by the godlike status of parenthood. If you aren't spoken to, you're not worth the time. If you're not greeted with love and affection, you haven't earned it. If you're ignored, you don't exist. Control over your own behavior is the only card you have to play in the hope of modifying theirs. Maybe you have to be tougher, stronger, more athletic, smarter, in some way better. Who knows? One evening, my father was giving me a few boxing lessons in the living room. I was flattered, excited by his attention and eager to learn. Things were going well. And then he threw a few open-palmed punches to my face that landed just a little hard. It stung. I wasn't hurt, but a line had been crossed. I knew something was being communicated. We had slipped into the dark netherland beyond father and son. I sensed what was being said. I was an intruder, a stranger a competitor in our home, and a fearful disappointment. My heart broke and I crumpled. He walked away in disgust. When my dad looked at me, he didn't see what he needed to see. That was my crime. He also saw in me too much of his real self. My pop was built like a bull, always in work clothes. He was strong and physically formidable. Toward the end of his life, he fought back from death many times. Inside, however, Beyond his rage, he harbored a gentleness, timidity, shyness, and a dreamy insecurity. These were all the things I wore on the outside, and the reflection of these qualities in his boy repelled him. It made him angry. It was soft, and he hated soft. Of course, he'd been brought up soft, a mama's boy, just like me. Oh, so heartbreaking and so sweet. <laughs> yeah. Wow, you really start this interview off with a lot of emotion. Um, why did you choose that piece? Right. So Bruce Springsteen is someone that I think everyone thinks of as this extremely tough guy. And of course, he is in many ways, right? But that's also partly a stage persona that he cultivated based in part on his father. And, you know, he's very open in interviews and in his biography about how he's actually a very sensitive person. He was always the sensitive, dreamy kid growing up. And it's something that stuck with him for life. And he even talks about how this is one of the, the qualities he admires in his sons specifically, that they are also uh, sensitive people. So he's sort of this walking contrast that we wouldn't expect. And I think that speaks to Bruce Springsteen's character, I would say, that he he embraced his sensitivity. It wasn't easy. He was obviously rejected by his father and a lot of friends and, and, you know, just the whole culture at the time. But he didn't give up on being sensitive. He leaned into it and decided to, you know, embrace the image of the rebel outcast rock star and used his sensitivity to fuel his music, his lyrics, and went on to become like the legend that we know today. So it's really inspiring. It is. It's really interesting in that piece of writing, you know, that line he writes about, he was disappointed as you know, this expectation someone has when someone looks at you, regardless of whether that's a parental and child relationship or a friend to friend. And we're not responsible for the expectations of others. That really stuck out. How has that weaved into your own life? 
Yeah. So I also grew up as a sensitive person. And I have to say that my parents are very loving. I think they did the absolute best they could with both my sister and I. We're both sensitive people. Uh, my parents, I don't think, would consider themselves sensitive that way at all. And I don't think they had the language for it back then. So they were kind of just had these two sensitive kids dropped in their lap with like, what do we do? They were very loving and supportive, but they just didn't know what to do with that. And I remember being in kindergarten, which is sort of like, I guess, nursery in the UK, right? When I started that, I, was, I did fine in class, right? We're learning the alphabet. We're drawing shapes. I, I do fine in the classroom. But then we'd have recess. We'd go out on the playground. And suddenly, there's hundreds of kids running everywhere, screaming, laughing, shouting, playing, sometimes fighting. There's balls flying around. And I would get overstimulated. And I didn't know that that's what it was. I just knew that I was getting overwhelmed. I didn't wanted to get out of there. I needed quiet. And so I started running away uh, during recess and I looked for a place to hide. And the only quiet place I could find was the opening of a storm sewer near the edge of the school grounds. So I would get in there nice and quiet, nice and isolated. Uh, and that was great. And it soothed me and I'd kind of come down from the overstimulation. And when recess was over, I'd, I'd run right back to class, um, which went well until the teachers found out where I was hiding. And that is not the call to your parents you want to get. <laughs> the story, and I don't want to ruin it for the readers, but the story of how this ends up after like the first chapter is so cute. And put it this way, there's a very, very sweet romantic story that Andre tells in this first chapter about how him and his wife met over bonded sensitivity. Um, and it's really, really lovely. But before that, what really struck me, to be honest, is understanding that sensitivity is genetic. Yeah, it's in your genes. And that's something that surprises a lot of people. I think part of that is we have to remember what we mean by sensitive, right? And I'll start with that maybe. That often when we hear the word sensitive, we think of being weak or fragile or somebody who overreacts to things. And that's just not what sensitive means. So as a personality trait, being sensitive means you take in more information from the world around you and you do more with it. And what I mean by that is the sensitive brain, if you're a sensitive person, your brain is actually wired to process all information more deeply, no matter what kind of input it is. So that can be sensory information, emotional information, picking up on the social emotional cues around you, it's ideas, it's concepts, it's data. Anything your brain takes in, you're wired to spend a little extra time, a little more mental effort, a little more mental energy on going deeper with it, spending more time thinking it through, ruminating on it, brooding on it, and connecting dots that other people might not connect because of that extra time. This is what defines a sensitive person. And there's so many strengths that come from that. It makes sensitive people deep thinkers, very creative, high in empathy and compassion, uh, having deep, strong sense of emotion, which can lead to a strong sense of passion and vision. And it's uh, across the board, largely a gift rather than a weakness. But it does have a downside as well, which is you're processing everything deeply all the time. You can get overstimulated as I did. So when we think of sensitivity that way, it doesn't seem so crazy that that would come from your genes. It's just a choice biology made of like, every creature needs to take in information and process it to respond to its environment. What if we tried having some do that more and some do it less? And we ended up with sensitive people. And I guess from an evolutionary perspective, sensitivity was an incredible trait to have in terms of survival, right? Why do you think this sensitivity genetic disposition grew? Right. So that's something we, we tackle in the book. My co-author, Jen Graneman, and I, we, we really make a case that sensitivity is an evolutionary advantage. 
And I think the first reason to, to think that is if you just look at the numbers, right? So just like every other healthy personality trait, uh, sensitivity is a continuum where everyone's sensitive to some degree. Most people are in the middle, they're average. Some are at the low end and some, about 30%, will score high for sensitivity. And that's the same numbers for both men and women. And as far as we know, people of all genders. So it's across the board. And that's an interesting fact because it's not 1% of the population or 2% the way you might see with a, a disorder or an extremely unhelpful trait. It's 30%, roughly what you would see for a normal distributed trait that's got some kind of advantage to it. And that's the first clue. When you start to look at what sensitivity does, it bears out. One of the most interesting studies I've seen is actually a computer simulation that scientists ran. And they said, well, let's just run a simulation of natural selection. We'll have all these little, you know, units, you could call them creatures, right, that are in there. And they're all going to behave differently in response to their environment. Some we're going to program to be more sensitive. So whenever they encounter a resource or a decision, they take more time kind of checking through all the stuff they've learned before, before making the choice. And they retain more information from those experiences. But that's going to cost them energy and it's going to mean they go a little slower. And then some are going to go fast. They'll shoot from the hip and just say, oh, resource, I'll grab it, you know, and then just move on without connecting a lot of dots or putting a lot of information in the bank. And over the course of generations, yeah, there are times when the sensitive creatures lose out. Of course, sometimes the person who jumps fast gets the resource. But over generations, the sensitive people won out. They just racked up resources and came out ahead over time. So there is this ability with that deep processing to notice what others don't. When you apply that to human evolution, it gets exciting, right? Because if you have this deeper processing, you tend to be more aware of your surroundings. You tend to notice little details others don't. So signs of a predator, signs the weather is going to change. Uh, at some point in ancient, ancient prehistory, somebody or maybe multiple somebodies in different cultures figured out when living on the coast that if we just waited for the tide to go out and if we could predict the tidal cycles, we could be ready every day to go harvest, you know, shellfish and have a really wonderful source of food that's not hard to hunt. Who was it that first sat there and watched the tides and figured this doesn't just happen randomly? There's a pattern here. And it's a hard pattern to crack. It's not the same every day. But we know from studies that sensitive people are better at predicting patterns and changes in patterns. So I think that sensitivity has been a real asset to humanity throughout our history. It's also an asset to other species. We're not the only species that has high sensitivity. There's at least 100 recorded and probably many more, including primates, so our closest cousins. I mean, when I read about the fact that 30% of people are usually on the sensitive side, I was reassured because I feel like I'm one of those 30% people, but also quite shocked how little we understand about sensitive people given how many there are. And mm. whether you are sensitive, in, in which case that's brilliant to normalize how you feel on a day-to-day -day basis, or whether you're not a sensitive person, I'm sure you work with sensitive people or, you know, someone in your family sensitive. And so it feels like a massive lack of education we have had in general about yeah. how different people are and how this leads me on to talking about the stigmas around sensitivity, because I definitely think that's been something that I've had many a time told to me, you know, stop being so sensitive. Oh, you're so sensitive, toughen up. Why do you think a stigma has grown so much around sensitivity? Right. So I think partly we have to think about the culture that we have right now, right? There is this real emphasis on individualism and being tough and, and toughing up through mm -hmm. everything. And in the book, we write about how in 1903, 
there was this lecture by the then pretty well-known, now most people have not heard of him, but he was an early sociologist named Georg Simmel. And Simmel was invited to give a talk at uh, an event that was supposed to be about promoting modern progress right at the turn of the century and pushing forward and how many great advances are helping us out as a species. And he kind of got to the podium and just threw out the script. And instead, he talked about the effect that this progress was having on the human mind. And he spoke about how, and he wasn't anti-progress or anti-tech. He understood, I mean, he took the streetcar, presumably, to get to the talk, right? But he knew that this stuff had a cost. And he spoke about how we were living in a world that was getting busier, faster, more crowded, louder, right? So the clanging of the streetcar, cities getting more crowded together, uh, streets being ripped up to put in modern sewers, which is a good thing electric lights for the first time, lighting up parts of European cities. And he talked about all this and the effect it was having, that you're working longer hours, you're always in a rush, you're always packed in with people. And part of us, uh, Simmel said, can keep up. The part of us that's about achievement and just getting things done, you can push yourself and keep up for a while. But the other part of us, the part that's about human connection, what you might call our sensitive side, was getting overwhelmed. You just can't make a human connection with every person you're packed in with on the streetcar, right? And so he talked about how we only had a limited amount of mental energy, which is something that we know to be mostly true, like that's more or less true. And he was one of the first people to suggest that and how we were kind of burning through it much faster in our modern fast-paced world. Well, that was 1903. And now in 2023, right, we have devices that Simmel couldn't have imagined, where it's a nonstop stream of information. You can be stimulated at any moment, 24 hours a day. Back then, it was an issue that just like, you might have to work later by a few hours because there was electric lights at work now, right? But now it's an issue of even when you're home and it's midnight, your boss could still text you or email you or send you a message, you're getting a notification and you feel like you have to answer it right away. So we're even more overstimulated now than in Simmel's time. And it does carry that cost. And the way our society has responded has not been to say, well, let's slow down, let's, let's you know maybe reduce the burden. We've responded by saying, Let's toughen up. Oh, you can't keep up. That's your fault, right? Mm -hmm. You need to work longer hours. You need to push yourself more. We need to start preparing our kids for college when they're three years old, right? It's this insane drive to do more, 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 more. And that's affected all of us. And regardless of how sensitive you are, everyone has a limit. But sensitive people often feel that first. And in that way, I think we can be the warning bell for a lot of the rest of humanity. Honestly, your book made me emotional. That bit in particular about Georg Simmel, I read it going, I cannot get over that this is write, a writing from 100 years ago because it feels so deeply relevant. And I wonder, are we in a mental health crisis or have we completely mislabeled the crisis that we're in, which is overstimulated and then exhausted because no one has had time to recharge from the mental energy that has been taken from them often without even being asked? Oh, that's a really fun question to explore. Yeah. I mean, so obviously, in one sense, we are in a mental health crisis in the sense that mental health is a very real, very important thing that's often, you know, gone unrecognized and doesn't have the right resources available to handle it. So that's that part's very true. But we need to remember, too, that, you know, what what is it that aggravates any mental health situation, right? Whether you have depression, anxiety, or anything else, we call them disorders. Mm. But these are on some level a reaction to stress. It's your body, your, your brain trying to figure out, well, how can I handle this overwhelming situation? 
Well, if you're anxious, your, your body and brain have sort of slipped into the mode of, I'll just be on high alert for threats all the time, and then I'll never be taken by surprise, right? And if you're depressed, your body and brain have sort of slipped into the mode of like, well, I'm going to check out more. I mean, I, I just yeah. can't do this. I'm going back, and I'm just not going to engage with it. Mm. And that you can kind of go down the list of just about everything we call a disorder. And of course, many of them have very deep genetic or, or neurological underpinnings that are not just caused by stress, but stress aggravates all of them. And on some level, they all flare up as a response to a stressful environment that's not working for you. So absolutely, if we were to focus as a society on reducing overstimulation, reducing overwhelm and burnout, uh, a fun fact is that to the brain, sensory overload, like overstimulation, and information overload are the exact same thing. There's no difference because all types of input are the same to the brain, whether you're getting too much news, too many notifications, too many TikToks, or whether it's, you know, oh, this is too loud in here, I can't concentrate. Your brain gets worn out in the exact same way and develops the same symptoms of cognitive fatigue and eventually burnout either way. So we just need to pull it back. So interesting and, and also relevant given how addictive our social media giants yeah. create their products. So it's really difficult to even put those barriers in place, even when we are in the midst of burnout. What I found fascinating is the point you made about how taking Tylenol, which is an American brand of painkillers, yeah. actually reduce someone's empathy. And I, and I would love to kind of unpack that more. How and why is this so relevant? Yeah. So when we talk about sensitivity being, you know, processing information more deeply, information comes in many flavors. So it includes the physical information. So that might be things like a sensitive person might notice the scratchy texture of a fabric or those like subtle hints of apricot in a nice white wine. But information is also emotional. And that's often the most important information mm -hmm. we have. So if you're a highly sensitive person, you might be the only one who notices that slight hint of a smile that flashes across someone's face before they manage to hide it. And you get this little hunch that like, wait, wait, they're holding something back. They might be lying. But to the brain, those are the same type of input. It's just data that has to be processed. And so, yeah, in, in one fascinating study, we saw that acetaminophen, or, or in the UK, I believe you call it paracetamol. Uh, Tylenol is a name brand of it. But if you take uh, paracetamol to numb a physical headache, you will score lower on an empathy test until that medication wears off. The two go together that closely, these two types of sensitivity. So it's really just one dial that gets turned up or down. Because I did hear from someone that if you're going through heartbreak, you know, sometimes paracetamol can actually help you manage an emotional wound as much as a physical one, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, for that same reason, right? It kind of turns down the dial on that. And it also, you know, when you're doing that, when you're reducing your empathy, even though it's, it's a very slight effect, it's not yeah. like you become completely without <laughs> But it is a, it's a small but very real effect, right? And not only would you be turning down and kind of dampening a certain sense of your own pain or your own grief, but that reduction in empathy also means you're not maybe being weighed down as much by all the stuff you pick up from other people, right? Because we spend a lot of our mental bandwidth thinking about the needs and concerns of other people, which is important and good, but it can be even more overwhelming when you're going through something stressful yourself. I think we've all had the experience of like, you have something really bad that just happened. Maybe you got fired or your partner mm. broke up. You want to talk to a friend about it. And the first thing they say is, oh, I had a really rough day. You know, I was late to work. And you're like, oh, I don't care. Like I had a thing, you know? So it's, it's hard to take on the concerns of other people when you're in a really hurt place yourself. 
How do you manage being a sensitive person? Because I put it out to my community, you know, do you have any questions? And Mm -hmm. the amount of responses I got was phenomenal. So I think a lot of people who listen to the podcast and follow me on social media also kind of identify as being sensitive. And I think one thing that definitely united a lot of the messages was because I said, you know, you're an advocate for how incredible being sensitive is, but a lot of them said, how is it positive when it takes you so long to make a decision, you're always thinking about other people's feelings, and when you're in a room with other people's feelings, you almost could feel just so overwhelmed because you can feel everyone else's emotions. So how do you manage that? That's a really astute question, because I think a lot of times when people ask, how do you manage it, they sort of have this wrong idea of sensitivity, but that nailed it. Like that's, those are really very real traits of of a highly sensitive person. It's a lot of it is environment dependent, right? I think the most important thing to realize as a sensitive person is that when you control your environment, your sensitivity becomes a strength rather than a limitation. We can't always control our environment, but we often have more control than we realize. So what I mean by that is sensitive people will do great in a calm environment and they will struggle in chaotic, crowded or overstimulating environments. So if you're dealing with making a difficult decision and you're taking time to make it, which is true, sensitive people will take longer to think about things. It's part of the deep processing. We want to do more research, ask more people their opinions, uh, ruminate on it for a little while before we make a decision. Well, you want to do that when you're not in a situation that's overstimulating, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't want to sit there having hung over the decision while you're being pressured by someone else to make the decision or while you're in a really bright store with loud music or, you know, in the middle of a fast-paced day. I think a sensitive person is the, the, the perfect person to say, you know what, I'm going to think about it and come back uh, and just excuse themselves from the situation. Uh, whenever that's possible, it might not be possible with every decision. And similar for those other things. I mean, sensitive people have a tremendous sense of empathy because of that deeper processing. We're more likely to pick up on the cues and feelings of other people. Not only do sensitive people rate their own empathy higher, but they score higher on empathy tests and we see more activation in the parts of the brain related to empathy, including the mirror neuron network. So sensitive people are probably the scientific explanation for empaths, right? If you're someone who absorb the emotions of others, you feel what they're feeling yourself. Maybe sometimes you start feeling it before you even consciously notice Mm. who it is feeling that thing. Most likely that's because you're a highly sensitive person and you're picking up on those social cues almost unconsciously. And it just starts happening. Your mirror neurons fire and you're building a simulation in your head of what that other person must be feeling based on those little cues you picked up. And now you're living it with them, right? And actually the the leading empath author, Judith Orloff, is on the record saying she agrees. That's most likely the explanation of, of empaths. You can do that and harness it as a tremendous source of compassion and change making in the world. If you're doing things to control the rest of your environment, right? If you're getting up in the morning, and this is something I recommend for all sensitive people, it could be the morning, could be the evening, doesn't matter, but start a routine where at some point in your day, every day, you spend, it could be 20 minutes, I would say at a minimum, you can do more, a lot of sensitive people prefer more, spend that time in what I call your sensitive sanctuary. It could be your favorite armchair. It could be your bedroom. It could be your your home office. It could be any place in your home or somewhere else that feels very comfortable and soothing where you just feel good. And what you're going to do for that time is nothing. You can play a little music if you want. If you want, you can journal because it helps you process your thoughts and feelings. But you're not going to look at your phone. You're not going to you know read a book, nothing else. And that's just your time to sit and let your brain 
do all the processing it's not caught up on. Mm. And it's going to start to process work stuff and relationship stuff and, you know, your hopes and dreams and fears and little annoyances and a fight you had two weeks ago with a friend. It's all going to start getting processed. And what happens during that time is not only do you feel better then, you feel less stimulated. It carries forward for your day or for the next day. Uh, where you kind of are a little bit more overstimulation proof and it starts to become your time when you have your aha moments, right? So your brain is making these connections and you start realizing, oh, I could solve that this way or, oh, we should do this at work or, oh, you know, I, I thought that person was angry for this reason, but I bet all they needed was this. And it starts to clear it out and you have these eurekas. And then when you go out into the world and somebody's having really big emotions or your boss needs something, you know, at a really unreasonably fast deadline or whatever it might be that's overstimulating, you're in a better place to start to respond to that. That is really, really great advice. Um, we actually had Judith on the podcast uh, last season, and she's one excellent woman, as you said, one of the leading voices on empathy and being sensitive too. Going back to that mirror neuron network, because I think Ooh. this is so interesting, because you're right, like what's actually happening biologically for us to be sensitive or to feeling someone else's emotions, because I guess there must be some sort of theory around, oh, I can feel people's energy. Does that ring true? Or is there any evidence around that? And could we really explain how mirror neurons work? What are they? And what's the impact of them? Yeah, so a lot of scientists just hate the word energy used in that context. <laughs> and I don't have a problem with it because we have this feeling that something invisible in the room has leapt from one person to the other person, right? Um, scientists use an equally misleading term. They call it emotional contagion. Well, it's not a germ, just like it's not like a beam of energy, right? But scientifically, who cares? We have a term that it makes sense to people. So I think using that term is fine, but I think it does help to understand what's going on. The mirror neuron network is actually getting pretty well understood. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of a simulation system. And what's interesting, we talk in the book about how this is not just the foundation of empathy, it's the foundation of morality. And I think oftentimes when we talk about, well, what's, you know, what does it mean to be a good person or how do you know if something is right or wrong? We use the golden rule. We use this litmus test of like, well, would you want someone else to do it to you? Or how would you feel if it was done to you? The only reason that rule works, this rule that we all know and we all try to follow, is because you can mirror in your head. You can say, okay, if that person is acting that way, and if they said that, and if the look on their face is like that, what, mean, what does that mean going on inside their head? How do they feel? And the only way you can do that is by simulating it inside your own head. The fun thing about mirror neurons is that they are not by, you know, historically, like evolutionarily, they're not about emotions. These are motor neurons. These are the types of neurons that control your physical body movements. And they evolved where if I raise my, my hand, you can raise your hand in the same way. Or if I do a dance move, you might be able to copy the dance move. So you're seeing what someone else does physically, and then you emulate it with your own body. That's what mirror neurons do. And it's only because we're these weird apes who developed a whole emotional lexicon that we started putting them into other uses, right? We're a very social species. It's not just us. There's a lot of other species that have an emotional side to mirror neurons. It's, it's very useful for a social species. But it's important for us to predict not just, oh, you know, if they're dancing that way, I can dance that way too. But to predict that frown, does that mean they're angry at me? And, and I need to look out for a threat or, or does that mean they're angry at me and I did something wrong and the group might be angry, the whole group might throw me out, which is a big risk to me. Or does that mean they're just sad about something I didn't do and I can breathe easy and I should go comfort them. You need to know that 
as, as a primate and especially as a human being. And so we started using those mirror neurons. Well, you know, it's a physical thing like this frown or this smile or whatever it might be. Uh, what does that mean inside someone's head? And it got more and more sophisticated over time. And now it's not just the foundation of our emotional lexicon and our ability to uh, understand and copy the emotions of other people, but it's also the foundation of our ability to put ourselves in other people's shoes and start to think ethically and start to think about what's good for everyone. And we often think of this empathy as a weakness because it's it's a pain point, right? I hear so many sensitive people talk about empathy as a curse because mm. it's hard. You don't want to take on the stress and sadness of the world. And we talk in the book about ways you can deal with that so you're not, but it's also this world-changing power. Because when we talk about sensitive people being uh, having an evolutionary advantage and those creatures in that simulation kind of gobbling up more resources over time, that might actually be a bad situation if they were selfish about that. But hey, lo and behold, the sensitive people who are best at making these long-term decisions and predicting pattern changes also tend to be high in empathy. So they're not just using it to get ahead and kind of throw everyone else under the bus. Oftentimes, sensitive people bring others up with them. And that is why you can use it for a world-changing force. It's really interesting about this mirror neuron network because obviously it's been incredible in keeping our species alive, but also it isn't completely reliable because I think that's something to address is when do we completely trust our mirror neuron network that we truly know what someone else is thinking or feeling? And when does it go awry? You know, I think the answer is, I'll, I'll use a quote from a, a famous American president who I personally don't love that much, but the quote is good. Trust, but verify, mm. right? So how much should you trust your mirror neuron network or how much should you trust your sense of, of absorbing and, and, and knowing the emotions of other people? You should trust it more than society tells you you should. You're, you're often right but you should not trust it 100%. Mm. It's not always right. And we know that for a fact because there's been studies done where people will observe uh, someone who is showing signs of distress or who isn't even necessarily told to show signs of distress, but they're just doing a stressful thing. One of the setups they used was they would ask one person to give an unplanned, impromptu talk right at a podium to a room full of people. And then the person they're actually testing is in a different room watching it by video, right? Or they've tried it where you're in the room watching it or all kinds of different variants. And generally speaking, the person watching the person speak can predict, like, how stressed out are they? Do they feel stressed out having to do this stressful thing of public speaking? But they're not always right. They can be fooled. Sometimes they think, oh my God, that person's so stressed out right now. And you're both asking the person giving the talk, how stressed out were you? And they're like, not very at all. I kind of enjoyed it. And you're also <laughs> monitoring signals, you know, on like, you know, skin tension and, and other, you know, signals of, of stress in the body that you can't easily fake while they're giving the talk. It's like, no, this person's chill as a cucumber. But the other person is thinking, oh, my God, they're so stressed out. So sometimes you'll get it wrong. But you're very good at it. The human brain is the most powerful social engine in the universe. It is more powerful than any computer we have and probably will have in the foreseeable decades. You have a sixth or seventh or eighth or ninth or whatever you want to call it sense for other people's emotions. Every human has this, well, nearly every human has this, but sensitive people are sort of the varsity players of this mirror neuron world. So you have a very accurate radar for people's feelings, but it's more useful if you start talking to the person, if you ask them questions, right? You respond to someone else's emotions by not telling them what you think mm. or pulling away or starting to comfort them immediately. Mm. You start asking 
hey, you, you, you look a little sad. What's going on? And they said, well, you know, I, I'm worried I'm going to lose my job. And, and you still you still don't jump to statements. You focus on questions like, wow, that must be really scary. You know, have you been at the job long? And you get them talking, talking about their feelings, especially that that must be really scary, isn't it? That's a very helpful question because it's, it's signaling that the two of you can come closer together. They can trust talking to you. But the other thing it's doing, that's the selfless side, right? You're helping them. But there is a self-interested side of this because you're also moving away from a place of just absorbing, absorbing and being stuck with their stress to a place of reaching out. And we know that that's how you start moving to compassion. That's how you move away from pure empathy, which is just absorbing the emotion, to compassion, which is relating to another human being and helping with it. And that feels good. Empathy often feels painful. We see people who are feeling empathy toward a, a stressed out person. They feel stressed out themselves. Their heart rate accelerates. They start to release stress hormones in their body. And there's a, a desire to pull away, to get out of the situation. That's why we use, you know, meaningless, cheerful phrases like, well, it'll all work out in the end. I just don't <laughs> want to talk to them. Get out of there right? But compassion has the opposite effect. Your breathing slows, your heart rate slows, you become calm, you become invested in the other person. Instead of pulling away, you're forming a connection. So it ends up helping both people, the person you're reaching out to, but also it eases the pain of empathy and that pain goes away. And instead you have a positive experience. So uh, always, always, always trust your, your emotional instincts, but then reach out and start talking to the person if you can. Such good advice. And I really enjoyed that chapter on moving from empathy to compassion. Again, just these are life changing tips for sensitive people, to be honest, because I can't even watch scary movies. I had to stop a series because I got so emotionally invested in the character and I knew she was about to die and I just couldn't even face it. And I'm like, this is a movie. Yeah, that's, I think that's very common for sensitive people. I think a lot of highly sensitive people just cannot or really struggle with watching any kind of media that's violent, even if it's fictional, you yeah. know. I'm a little bit like more okay with that than I think some sensitive people, but I'll be honest. So my sister and I are both highly sensitive. We were, we were at a pub with my parents uh, last summer, just kind of getting together, catching up. And it was a quiet time. So there was a TV on in the pub and we just happened to be sitting facing the TV. What was on the TV was a compilation of these fail videos, right? Where somebody messes up something. Okay. And it was just one after another. And like 90% of them are, oh, he flies over the handlebars of his bike and hits his head. Oh, he falls off the diving board and, you know, lands this way. They're all just people getting hurt. Yeah. And I understand that that's funny for some people, especially if maybe the person didn't really get seriously hurt. But my sister and I, we had to get up and move. We like physically moved to the other side of the table to just to not be facing that TV. It can't even just be peripherally on for us because it was just like, oh, God. And our parents were like, what's wrong? It's just a, it's just a bloopers reel. And we're like, I, we cannot watch this bloopers reel. I'm sorry. I relate. I totally relate. I would love to move and talk about how do sensitive people differ in romantic relationships and what are your advice because I think this can be quite challenging especially if you're in a relationship with someone who isn't sensitive and then if two sensitive people are together also it can be a complete disaster <laughs> yeah all of those dynamics I mean we've seen both we've talked to many people in both kinds of relationships I think it's very common for a highly sensitive person and a less sensitive person to become a couple partly because the less sensitive people outnumber sensitive people, right? So it's just likely you'll meet someone who's average or lower sensitivity. That's not a bad thing. That can be very helpful. It can be a really beautiful dynamic. Uh, sometimes we'll see a situation where the less sensitive partner serves as kind of like the bedrock. They're kind of like the anchor that's just the kind of nice and reassuring, not phased by things. 
And the sensitive partner is the one who brings life and depth and, and energy into the relationship. And it's this beautiful kind of opposites attract sort of thing. But it can be a struggle too, because you have very different instincts from each other. The thing to know about sensitive people in a relationship is that we crave depth. And this is something that's true for sensitive people in all areas of life. We want a job that has a sensitive purpose mm -hmm. and, and meaning behind it. Uh, we want our lives to have a sense of purpose and meaning. And we want that kind of like meaning, that sort of depth in our relationships too. And that means that sensitive people uh, are often not happy with more casual chit chat. Mm -hmm. It means they're not happy casual connections. It means that they are really looking for a partner where they can go deep, go deep in their, their you know, how intimately they know each other, go deep in their, their conversations they have, and their emotional connection, and their ability to talk about and understand each other's emotions. So if you are a less sensitive person, just average sensitivity, uh, dating or married to a highly sensitive person, one of the most important needs you can meet for your partner is that sense of depth. And if they want to talk about emotions, it's perfectly fine if you just don't have the bandwidth right now or, or you, you need to do it later and you say, hey, look, I can't do this right now, but how about this evening after dinner? That's fine. But in general, you want to make time to have those deeper conversations. It could be about your emotions and your relationship. It could be about other things. It could be about what's AI doing? Where's, mm -hmm. where's society going to go? You know, anything like that. There's going to be these bigger, fascinating topics that sensitive people need as opposed to just like, we got a nice dinner, we watched a nice movie. So do that, provide that. But I also think there needs to just be a mutual understanding between the sensitive and less sensitive partner, that both of these styles of living in the world, both of these brain styles are good. They're both healthy and they're both full of strengths and they both have their drawbacks too, but you can complement those drawbacks for each other. So if your sensitive partner uh, gets overstimulated in the grocery store and doesn't want to go in, like, okay, maybe you handle that for them. But on the reciprocal end, then they have to trust you to buy the right things or they have to prepare their list in advance. Right? So you're not going to be texting back and forth like, why didn't you get this? Why didn't you get that? Uh, but there has to be a two-way acceptance. It's like, I'm not going to get upset with you that you don't want to come on these errands because you do other stuff for us. And you're not going to get upset with me that I bought this and not that um, or that I'm going without you or things like that. That especially happens in social uh, situations. A lot of sensitive people are extroverts a lot are introverts. It can be either one, but even the extroverted uh, sensitive people will have a limit on how long they can be at a busy or crowded event. If it's a small dinner party with three or four friends, an extroverted uh, sensitive person can go all night. There's no problem. They'll love it because it's, it's intimate and quiet and calm. But if you're at a big party or a music festival or a conference or anything like that, your sensitive partner is going to say, I can go an hour. <laughs> you know, or they're just going to hit a point where they say, I'm leaving. And I don't mean I'm going to start to plan to leave and wind down toward leaving and then make my way out and say 400 goodbyes. I'm just, I have to leave. Whether that's to go back to the hotel, to go home, to go sit in the car, just to take a walk outside, doesn't matter. And there has to be that two-way acceptance again, that the sensitive partner is going to be okay if the less sensitive partner wants to stay, if they're having fun, that's fine. They're not wrong for not coming with you. And the less sensitive partner has to be okay that the sensitive partner is leaving because they're just taking care of their needs and you can stay and have fun. So it's that two-way acceptance that matters so much. I would love to talk about sensitivity at work because I think sometimes people are environments that it's not like an intimate relationship where there is probably more room for conversations. How do sensitive people survive the work arena in a way that's supportive of them? when perhaps they have bosses or they've got these environments that they don't feel they can speak up in? So this is a really fun question because there's some evidence to suggest that sensitive people tend to be the most stressed out people at the workplace, 
but also the highest performers as rated by their managers, which means we have this weird mismatch in our corporate culture where the people who, in theory, are most valuable to the company, in some way their needs are not being met and they're being driven toward burnout and quitting early or, or turning over quite often. That's not good for anybody. It's not good for the sensitive people who feel stressed out and burnt out. It's not good either for the companies who are losing those valuable employees. So there is a mismatch. As a sensitive person, uh, there's two things you need to remember. The first one is you can thrive in any career. I often get asked, like, well, what are the best jobs for highly sensitive people? Whatever job you want to do, whatever job you want to do. Are there some that sensitive people are more drawn to? Sure. The arts, caretaking roles, therapy, things like that, because it plays to the strengths of creativity uh, in the case of the arts or, or empathy in the case of caretaking roles. But those jobs can also be extremely high in burnout. And likewise, there's sensitive people who become business leaders, scientists, accountants, right? Just name it. Any, any position you can think of. Somewhere out there, there's probably like a sensitive race car driver. So uh, you can do any job you want to do. Do not let your sensitivity shape. If you have a dream to do a certain field, it, don't say no because you're a highly sensitive person. You will be able to build the tools to adapt to that environment. And even if you chose a stereotypically sensitive job, you'd still have to find tools to adapt to that environment and deal with the burnout. So number one, just do what you want to do. But number two, control your environment. You can do it in little ways, right? Like the examples we often hear are like, oh yeah, use noise canceling headphones while you're at work or that kind of thing. But I think what's important is the bigger ways, the ways that involve talking to your manager or your boss because you need to be open and proud about your sensitivity because it does make you one of the most valuable workers. It does not mean you need to make it a big deal at work, but here's something very reasonable you can say to your boss. I'm pretty sensitive to my environment, so I do my, my best work when I don't get overstimulated. Is there somewhere quiet I can go to work? Mm. That could mean getting space in a conference room that's not in use, could just mean, who knows, right? There's lots of ways to accommodate that in the workplace if you're working physically in, in the workplace that are not just like, no, we all sit around the same table. Like, it's lots of ways to make that happen. And it's reasonable. Another very reasonable thing you can say is, you know, um, I do my best work when I'm able to focus deeply on one thing and not have distractions. What are the best times during the week for me to schedule time to do that? It's not going to be a good work environment for you if you're always, you always have email open, you always have Slack notifications or Teams notifications coming in, interruption, 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 someone poking their head and the phone ringing. You can't just make that go away all the time. But you can say, you know, for two hours on Wednesday and between these hours on Friday, I just turn off all my notifications, don't check email, and I do one project for two hours. That's very reasonable. So start to seek that kind of control over your environment and your work style to lean toward focused work and calmer environments and be very aware of how your manager is responding, how the company is responding, whether that is uh, encouraged and it should be, it's a reasonable thing that's tied to your work output uh, or whether there's a lot of pushback because anyone should learn how to say no to a toxic work environment, start looking for something better. But for sensitive people, we are sensitive to it. We need to do that even more. And when we create a supportive environment, we don't just do okay. We don't just do as well as everyone else. We actually rocket past other people. That's when you activate what we call the sensitive boost effect. Just to the sensitivity boosting effect is brilliant to understand. And this obviously kind of links to the sensitive revolution that you are pioneering. But before we go, what's some last things you would really love sensitive people to know that this is their superpower? Two things I want you to take with you if you're sensitive. The first one is 
that uh, you can activate the boost effect in your life. That's the ability of sensitive people to draw on positive or supportive resources more than others and actually do more with them. Uh, you can activate that yourself. It doesn't matter what kind of childhood you had or anything else. Uh, as an adult, you can do things like seeking a mentor in your career or taking a training program or starting therapy or joining a mastermind group or just cultivating a supportive friend group by looking at, well, which friends do I have that really believe in me and really build me up? I'll spend more time with them and I'm start not spending time with the people who, who pull me down. That helps anybody to have that around you. It helps you times 10. You have a rocket engine strapped to your back, so use it. But the other thing I would say is the most important thing you can ever do as a sensitive person is to embrace and celebrate your sensitivity. A lot of sensitive people, because of the stigma, will hide it or downplay it or even deny it to themselves, like I did for most of my life. What happens is you still have the overstimulation. You still take a little longer to make decisions. You still get worn out from certain things that wouldn't wear other people out. You get all the downsides, but you're cutting yourself off from the gifts if you don't accept your sensitivity. So when you start to embrace it, that's when you unlock the gifts of the sensitive person, seeing things that others miss having creative solutions, innovating things, connecting with others, building them up, rallying and inspiring teams, becoming a powerful source for good in your community, and becoming a capable leader if that's where you want to go. Uh, those are things you can unlock when you embrace your sensitivity, but it has to start with that moment of saying, I am sensitive and I'm proud. That even makes me want to cry. That's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so great. Oh, I have to say, I just really really loved your book and I'm sure everyone can tell how much I loved um, Andre's book but I really did because to me this book is so deeply relatable to whether you you relate to being sensitive or you know you will know someone as I said at the beginning you will know someone who's deeply sensitive it just feels like such a universal textbook to understanding humanity being human Thank you so much for this wonderfully practical interview. You've really shared some tips there, which I think we can all use. Where is the best place for people to find you, ask questions and all the rest? Absolutely. So the book can be found anywhere that you buy books. You can get it. Uh, you can find us at our website, sensitiverefuge.com or me at on social media, just about anywhere at Just Andre Solo. And the name of the book is Sensitive. I really hope you enjoy reading it as much as I did. And thank you so much for coming on The Unwind. You have just been a complete delight. Thank you, Poppy. You too. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker. A skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions, and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you, so do shoot me a message on Instagram, send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.